Welcome to a very special social distancing season of Consumed, the podcast about life and flavor across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm Jamie Lewis. Every quarter, I publish 10 conversations I've had with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, but this season is a little different for obvious reasons. To keep things healthy and safe, I'm conducting interviews via Zoom. Thanks for bearing with me in this new, uncharted territory. Before we get started, I have to tell you about a recent conversation I had with my friend, James Onaveros. He's the farmer and owner of Ranchos de Onaveros and Native Nine Wines in the Santa Maria Valley, and I interviewed him in my first season. Anyway, we were talking about COVID and how much it's affecting everything in the hospitality industry, and then I said, yeah, I question whether or not I should even bother doing another season of Consumed right now, given how scary and difficult everything is. James stopped me right there and said, no, Jamie, we need these conversations now more than ever. James is a born storyteller, so I get why he thinks stories matter. But when he said he wanted to sponsor the next season of Consumed, I knew he really meant it. We need stories about our experiences, how we fell in love with food or wine or brewing or baking, and we need it right now, when so many of us have to put our passions on the back burner just to survive. So, I'm letting James and Ranchos de Anaveros help me, and I fully intend to help him. Find his exquisite Pinot Noir and Chardonnay wines at ranchosdeanaveros.com and check out his new restaurant, The Station in Los Alamos, where you can get takeout on the weekends. Find The Station at thestationlosalamos.com. And as always, Consumed is sponsored by the awesome people at Slow Life Magazine. In preparing for their first post-coronavirus issue, I've been so impressed by how resilient they are and how focused they are on the local community. I cover food for Slow Life, so it's been tricky finding a good way to write about restaurants without stressing them out. But the Slow Life editor suggested I write about farm boxes and CSAs, which is a brilliant idea while those services are going bananas with growth. The point is, Slow Life is a source of community and calm right now when we're all separated and anxiety is running maybe a little high. Look for a copy in your mailbox every other month. And if you're not already in the know, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. Aaron Primer is the Director of Food Services for San Luis Coastal Unified School District on California's Central Coast. She joined the district four years ago, and I can say from my own experience with local schools, things changed the very moment she came to town. She brought fresh energy to the school lunch program, incorporating many local farmers and purveyors into the dishes, including a few I've interviewed here on the podcast, and significantly increasing the number of meals the district supplies. Raised an only child by a single mom, she credits much of her creativity and drive to her upbringing. In other words, she just does not believe in the word no. It's a timely discussion right now in particular with COVID-19 and the massive shifts Erin and her team have had to make to ensure that kids get fed while they're away from school. Erin talks a bit about the pandemic EBT, which offers extra benefits to families that qualify for school lunches during the season of change, including cash for groceries. If you or someone you know needs these services, I've put a link with more information at letsgetconsumed.com on her episode page. Listen in as Erin and I talk about feelings around food, not knowing where rice comes from, and about building an airplane at 30,000 feet in the air. Here's my talk with Erin Primer. Oh, and her daughter, Ella, makes an appearance for a quick second, too. After all, this is the land of Zoom. Okay, here's Erin. It's 
funny. I remember it's actually this weekend will be my fourth year at, at San Luis Coastal. Mm. And I remember when I first had signed on, someone had mentioned something about being a disaster service worker. Mm. Like, what the heck is that? And I think that's another one where people don't think about what it would be like to activate that kind of a call. Um, we plan for it, but we never actually think that that's what's going to happen. Mm. And so all of our district employees and food service most critically are labeled as essential service workers or disaster service workers. So in the event of what we normally think of as a disaster are things like a fire, flood, some kind of a natural disaster. Pandemic was never something that I really gave much thought to, um, but it, it's part of that, of that role. And so really feeding children and figuring out how kids still eat is such a huge part of what we do. And I remember feeling very early and very fully that that wasn't going to change in the midst of a pandemic, that having our routine of nourishing young people um, seems like the most normal thing to do. Granted, now we have a whole slew of other thoughts about how we do that. And right off the bat, that first Monday morning, we got all of our, our team together. We had a meeting at Laguna Middle School. There's about 25, 30 of us. And I remember being very clear and adamant about we need to to really incorporate social distancing into what we do. And as people came in, it was like, okay, you can sit there. Six feet later, you can sit there. Yeah. And I remember the staff and I just thinking, this is so weird and it feels weird. And we had to acknowledge that. We had to have a little laugh about it. And, and now a couple, three months later, it's, it's such a part of what we're normally doing now. And no one would laugh about social distancing. It's like, yeah, you keep your six feet. And so it's very odd how these things unfold. But I do believe that the human spirit is incredibly resilient. And I think that's what our department has seen. You know, we've seen people who have experienced very similar emotions from being um, scared and frightened and concerned to just feeling like uh, it's our duty and responsibility to make sure kids are fed. So I've got great people around me from the department to the district. I, I think that's what really allows us to be able to make these crazy plans and then sharp turns and changes based on information as it comes in. And that uh, flexibility and, and grace is really what gets us through it and, and helps it um, be a little more okay and somewhat normal. Yeah. I think that you've been uh, really, since you came in, I've thought that things were very out of the box, which I'm really proud of about our district. So it doesn't surprise me that you and your whole team, everybody has been able to pivot really nicely. Um, so if I think that about you, I want to know, how did you get that way? Where did you grow up and who were your parents? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with, I, I was raised, I'm, I'm a California girl. I was born and raised in Southern California. Uh, I was raised by a single mom and an only child. So I think that's a little bit of an interesting dynamic about me uh, where I, I do see things differently. I think I, I see a lot of the world differently. Um, I, I was a child that experienced, um, you know, being in a socioeconomic challenged household. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And, you know, there was a lot of heartache and strife as a very young person. But being raised by a mom who didn't want anything to stop me from achieving anything that I wanted to achieve really gave me the foundation and the building blocks for that out-of-the-box thinking where, um, you know, my, my mom jokes that she didn't raise a people pleaser, which was um, 
much more challenging as a child and a little easier, a little more palatable as an adult. Sure. Um, but I wasn't raised with, um, you know, you can't do these things or you're not able to do these things. I think that's incredibly important as a woman in the workplace. I think it's incredibly important as a younger person in the workplace. Uh, even though I've been at San Luis Coastal for four years now and I've been a manager in a professional setting for 15 years, uh, I'll be 36 this year. And, and that's, Girl. Still very young in a lot of yes. ways, even though I've got two kids and lots of gray hairs. Uh, it's it's a very interesting dynamic. So I think that throughout my career, I, I've had this um, feeling of really being unstoppable, not because I have some weird complex, but because I just don't think that no means um, you can't do things. I think no means you've got to find another creative way to get that done. And so I, I agree. A lot of the things that I brought to San Luis Coastal really come from my own background, my own passions. Uh, in addition to being raised by a single mom, I, um, I was introduced and mentored very early on in my life and in my career. Uh, I remember my mom had a, a mentor that uh, she was very close to who would take us to the Hollywood Bowl and the Philharmonic. And so I was really exposed to a lot of things mm. as a very young child because my mom had really positive mentors in her life who helped expose those things to me as a young child. Uh, and so my love for food and, and not wine as a child, but you know, a little older wine, the finer things in life and, and things that really just um, challenged the norm and were different. I had a very natural curiosity for a lot of those uh, types of things. Mm. And then as I grew up, uh, you know, as soon as I could get a job, I did. I remember being 14 and a half and working at the local restaurants and being a hostess because I wasn't old enough to be a server. Yeah. And so I, this young path has always been part of my life because I, I've never known anything other than work, uh, mostly to help out my mom. Um, but I've just had a very strong work, work ethic instilled in me from a very young age. And I've always worked in food. That first job was at a restaurant. Uh, when I was in college, I actually was an intern for the food service provider at the university. And so I was a marketing and catering intern. Mm. I thought it was the greatest job they would pay me to give them ideas about food and marketing. And you know, I thought that was the coolest thing. And then when I graduated, they had this great job for me. And so I, I've always worked in food. I've always worked in institutional food. Mm -hmm. I've done different things from uh, colleges and universities to uh, hospitals. I worked at Stanford Hospital for a while where I got my CDM, which is a certified dietary manager. I learned all about special diets and crazy things. And uh, I worked at the, the San Francisco Zoo. I was the catering director there for a few years. I love that zoo. Uh, I worked in schools. Yeah, I've done, I've done crazy things, but it's always been institutional food. I always have had this passion for I, and I think the institutional piece, it excites me to change the face of that. So at Stanford Hospital, we brought on room service and challenging the norms of what people think about food or institutions uh, and their food, I think is really exciting. Uh, I've always had a hand in catering and marketing, and so I see things a little bit differently as far as the quality of foods that people consume, as well as how we talk about them and how we, um, you know, market them. And, and it's been a really fun journey, mostly through my own passions and my own uh, zest for things. Even in college, I, I had somebody else interview me and said, okay, I see you're a communications major. And yeah, I probably could guess that. Uh, I also double minored in organizational leadership and psychology. Hmm. That means absolutely nothing other than I really love school. I really love yeah, learning. I was, was going to ask if you were a good student. I bet you were. Yeah, I, I just, I loved it. So 
being raised by a single parent and one of the biggest things my mom always pushed on me or you know wanted for me was to go to college she didn't care what I did she didn't care what path I chose but I remember from a very early age not going to college was not going to be an option was your mom what did your mom do for a living so my mom did a lot of different things. Uh, my mom worked for mostly for her career. She worked for the phone company. She actually just retired from AT&T. Okay. Um, she, but she had worked with a lot of different philanthropic things. She had worked with United Way and had this passion, too, for events and people. And uh, it's very interesting because she says she uh, she started working at AT&T purely for health benefits so that she could afford um, my medical insurance. Mm -hmm. And it turned out to be a really great job for her for 25 years. Mm -hmm. So I think now that my mom's retired, she's going to find that she's able to do a lot more of what she's passionate about, uh, which I really want to see that come to fruition. She actually bought a house up uh, in Pathos where I live, and uh, she'll be moving in at the end of this month. So I'm really excited to have her up here and be around her grandbabies, especially being an only child and yeah. who has siblings. So. That's awesome. I didn't mean to interrupt. So college was really important to her. I figured this was going to be a really fun, fabulous uh, dive into all sorts of crazy <laughs> things. Uh, but yeah, I, I worked for the food service operator in college, and I just really enjoyed systems. I really enjoy learning and figuring things out. I definitely have like a tinker kind of mind where uh, people actually joke in my department that, you know, you throw a problem my way and you'll be amazed at how I solve it. Mm. Because I really just want to understand what are the issues? You know, what is it that we're facing? Um, what are the challenges? How do we approach it? How do we get it done? Uh, and I'm very into accomplishing things. Yeah. Uh, it sounds weird coming out, but, uh, you know, nothing gives me more satisfaction than crossing things off of post-it notes. And oh, me too. <laughs> and I, I'm totally. I'm into that kind of thing. But I, I think aligning it with the work I'm doing now, it makes so much sense. I, I feel like I really am in the right place for what I can bring to the table, for what our community is hungry for fully intended yeah. um, and it, it's beautiful to see it, and it, it's so not ego driven it's so not just me um, to see partnerships with different agencies and different farms and farmers and mm -hmm. the food bank like it, it's so amazing when you can get the, the right people people who really care and are really passionate about what they're doing and you can align those pieces together um, that's that unstoppable accomplishment. Like there's nothing that my team can't do. There's nothing that our district can't do. Um, I just think it's really exciting to be a leader of that and to be able to really create positive food experiences for yeah. kids. It's yeah. fun. Totally. <laughs> I'm wondering if you, just backing up a little bit, did you ever experience food insecurity as a kid? I did. Uh, and so what's interesting is I actually didn't really come to terms with a lot of this until this current role where when I look back on, on food as a child, uh, I very much remember being a child of the lunch program with a working single mom. Um, you know, I wasn't getting bento box flower shaped sandwiches. You know, I, I may get a note, a love note, uh, but I, that was not, my mom didn't stay home and she didn't make my lunch and was actually really funny is uh, my mom, I love her, God bless her, my mom doesn't cook. My mom has no idea um, how to make things. She she took a Williams-Sonoma class once, and so we knew how to use the wok or the microwave. Like, that was what we did in my house. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't like my mom had these amazing meals on the table, and, and it wasn't because she didn't love me or care for me. It was quite the opposite. Uh, but she really uh, worked and worked a lot, and I think that's where I get a lot of my drive from. I mean, uh, we joke about being like the Energizer Bunny, we just keep going and going and going. Yeah. Uh, and that I definitely got from my mom. But I didn't get these cooking skills. Now, my mom was smart enough to uh, 
really pair me with people that could help teach me some of these things. So I remember having, she would call it a mother's helper. I think it was a fancy name for babysitter Babysitter, uh, that would come in and do the grocery shopping with me and show me how to make some things. And even when I would go to after school programs, like at the boys and girls club, I remember always being signed up for the cooking class. And I just love being in the kitchen. I love learning about food and where it comes from. Um, I don't have memories of of it being a negative thing in my life with eating school lunch. Uh, But it's funny because I don't look back on it and think, gosh, um, I was part of this stigmatized program. That's Mm -hmm. not the feelings that I have around it. But I very much remember bringing my two quarters for lunch. Uh, When I looked back on it, I thought, I actually had to ask my mom, I said, were we on the the lunch program? Because it never felt that way. It never Mm -hmm. felt like it. Um, Even when my mom would take me to McDonald's, we would split a happy meal because we didn't have enough money for her to buy her own dinner. Mm -hmm. And so, Looking back, I was a kid eating a Happy Meal at McDonald's. Like, I did not feel like we were poor. I did not feel like we didn't have things. Uh, And I think that was really an important piece that my mom always wanted me to feel like we weren't going without. Um, And so it's very interesting that in looking back, I reflect upon a lot of that and think about, wow, that's really crazy how we did face food insecurity. And my mom sacrificed so much so that I could have and, and truly being a parent now, you realize exactly what that's about and how that works. Um, But I think that's so magical that mom in particular, my mom in particular, never made me feel like we didn't have, never made me feel like we were suffering or missing out on things. And so it's, it's pretty, that's big. Your memories about sharing the Happy Meal are interesting to me because like you said, you didn't have bad memories. You ha- you didn't think, oh, we were poor and that's why we were eating it. You were thinking, right. this is so fun. I love being out with my mom. And so I think that that's pertinent to what you're doing with school lunch, that it's not about, oh, you can't afford lunch, which when I was growing up, we got school lunch because we were lucky. You know, one day mom couldn't make lunch and it was like, have school lunch, great. And we were all excited. So I feel like you're starting to work on a positive. There's a really positive feeling around the food with San Luis Coastal. Is that, do you think that's accurate? Most definitely. And and I think so much of not just my own story about my food memories, but all of us, so much of our memories around food, it's often not about the food. It's really about these feelings that we have. I remember seeing a quote, I'm pretty sure it's Ben Franklin, that said, the taste of the roast depends upon the handshake of the host. And I feel like it's the same kind of thing where you really can create these incredible memories that really aren't about whether or not something tasted good. I mean, that's a piece of it, but it's really about these feelings around what was the environment in which we had this experience. And especially with kids, it's so important that we have these opportunities where they get to have those experiences. They get to form these food memories. And then it's even more important that we're able to offer those opportunities in a public school setting to kids who may not normally have that kind of experience. You know, I hear a lot of times about families who, um, you know, will tell their kids, you know, or some variation of, yeah, make sure you eat at school today because, you know, that may not be, that may be the last meal that you get is at school. You know, we may not be able to afford food to be at home. And I think for a lot of people, when they hear that, it seems like a story. It doesn't connect with something that's real, especially if you haven't experienced food insecurity. And to really think about that in Slow County, where I think on the surface, we get a lot of, you know, oh, it's, you know, you're, it's Central Coast, you're on the beach, and it's beautiful. And 
food insecurity doesn't exist there. And that's just not true. And I think if anything, this pandemic has really shown us how true that really is. Um, the school lunch program is a national program. So these income eligibility guidelines are a national scale. So a family of four making $40,000 in California is struggling. Yeah. The cost of living, the cost of rent, it, it, it's hard. That same family of four living in Idaho has a much different life. Cost of living is much different. And that's probably my, one of my biggest right with the school lunch program is there's not any taking into account where people live uh, and what that might look like with struggling. Wow. I'm surprised by that because it is a huge difference between somebody in say like Tennessee or Arkansas and California, you know, like Bay area or yeah. 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 Most definitely. And I think that's where we have a lot of families who just don't qualify. They make just enough to not meet these income eligibility guidelines. And those are our families that are the most vulnerable. Those are the families that a lot of them right now have lost jobs. A lot of them right now are in even more of a struggling sense. So the good news is that right now, if anything has changed, income has changed or number of people living at home, a lot of families may have to double up and uh, all of that would be reason to get on the program now. Uh, and anybody can apply at any time if a change like that has happened. Um, the other good thing that's happening in addition to these weekly meal kits that we're able to offer uh, is something called Pandemic EBT, and that is a new thing that has just come out. It's just for uh, school-age children, so you have to be a child enrolled in a school that participates in the National School Lunch and Breakfast Program, but it's a $365 per child EBT card uh, for families to be able to purchase groceries, whether it's from the grocery store, the farmer's market, Amazon and Walmart um, are now um, businesses that you can use for that. And I think back to when I was a kid and like, man, I can only imagine how $365 would have really helped my mom during a time where, you know, it would have just been her and thinking about my mom struggling with, would she have been working? Would she have not been working? Um, and just how that, how much weight that would have carried and how much, you know, stress that she would have felt. And I think about that with our families now. And I think that's probably why I'm so passionate about making sure that our program is good enough so that it doesn't matter who pays your bill. It doesn't matter if mom and dad pay your bill and you get that special school treat once a month or however often. And it doesn't matter if the government pays your bill and you're on the meal program. You're not eating food in my district because you're poor. You're eating food in my district because it's good. Yeah. And I think that is, is the best thing that I can bring to this position. That is the best thing that I can bring to our kids is this feeling that you're worth it and you should eat good food and you should eat local food and you should know about that and you should be able to have experiences that you may or may not have otherwise had the opportunity to experience because those are the memories that are going to shape you. I mean, I think back to, you know, the first time you ate an heirloom tomato. Mm. I'm sure you can call back to what that tasted like, what it looked like. The first time I saw an heirloom tomato, I was like, tomatoes come in these colors? Like, this is amazing. And then you have that first bite, and it's just sweet and juicy and ripe, and you're thinking, God, this is the best tomato I've ever had. Why shouldn't kids experience that with a ton of different things at 
school. That is where we send them to learn things. That is the safest place to be able to have these different food experiences. And, and I'd really like to see more of that in school food. I'd really like to see school food being known for providing these memories and providing these opportunities for kids to start uh, what is going to be a lifetime relationship with food. I want it to be a healthy relationship with food. I want them to, you know, have some respect about our food system and know where things come from. I was 20 plus years old before I realized that rice did not come from a rice aroni box. And I say that because that's what I was exposed to. Yeah. That's what I knew growing up. My mom didn't cook a lot. And so if she made rice, it was from the rice aroni box. What's funny about that is I married a Filipino guy and uh, we eat rice all the time. And the fact that uh, I did not know that for 20 years of my life is a running joke in my in my family. But we all are more knowing these things. So if we're not going to teach these these, um, these kinds of things to kids at school, where else are they going to learn that? Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm calling back on some jobs that you've done or some, some relationships that you've forged with local people also. Um, uh, I know Jensen Lorenzen was one of them. Um, and, uh, Larry Kandarian is another, and those are good guys. Jensen was on my first season and then Larry's going to be on tomorrow. So it's just, it's um, on my mind. Well, Larry and I are mutual fans of one another. And I, I will say that, you know, my whole life, I've always, I've always had this affinity for figuring things out, finding things right, finding the best things. It's, it's really an exciting kind of thing. Uh, and one of my early on jobs, so I, I worked in colleges and universities. I worked down at Chapman University in Southern California. I moved to St. Cloud, Minnesota for a year and worked at uh, a university there. And then about a year later, I was like, this is far and cold. Uh, I need to get back to California. And the job that I got was still with Sodexo, the big food service provider that I had worked with. Uh, but it was up in the Bay Area, and it was at Menlo College and Menlo School. And they were known for being an all-organic dining facility. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, that's, that's pretty Bay Area, pretty California. <laughs> Very. Uh, but that was, my, that was my first real experience in what does that mean? And why does that matter? And why are you spending so much time and money on, on doing this? And does it taste different? And do kids care about it? And that was about 10, 12 years ago. So to be exposed to that in such a, a huge way was very, very much um, eye-opening, but it really shaped my career. It really shaped my understanding and my relationship with food um, and my beliefs about what I think people should eat and be exposed to. So through having these catering jobs, uh, I really was able to go in fun directions with that. Uh, the nice thing about catering is there's not usually uh, super tight budgets like there is in school. Right. And so we always had lots of fun with, with all these kinds of local things. Now at Stanford Hospital, it was really interesting because they really liked that same idea. And there was a lot of uh, talk about wanting everything to be organic. And so it was a really interesting next step for me because I was able to apply these um, building blocks from Menlo College and School into Stanford Hospital. And I remember there was one time where we were talking about organic ketchup. And it was like three or four times the cost of the regular ketchup. And it, it didn't taste better than regular ketchup. Uh, and it was so funny that there were just these condiments or very specific things that um, they wanted to be organic. 
And I learned early on then too, well, well, why do you want it to be organic? And why does that matter? And is there, is it an all or nothing? And so I think that was kind of a next level that shaped sort of where I'm at today. Uh, and that was very interesting. And then working in schools, because I had all of this experience with, uh, you know, some finer dining type <laughs> catering things, when I got to schools and I saw what was happening in schools, I was really confused. I thought, you know, shouldn't kids get <laughs> the best food? Shouldn't they be the ones that mm. that eat things? And and a, a lot of my early school food career was met with a lot of um, that doesn't exist. Kids won't eat that. Um, you know, again, those kinds of no's. Where I think that's what's happened. That's what happened. You know, for for fifty, sixty years in the school lunch program is there just wasn't a lot of questioning. There certainly wasn't a lot of funding. Uh, but I, I find that to be an incredible challenge to bring that same level of quality, but do it within a really small budget. And I can tell you that it it is possible and it does work. Um, one of the things about the school lunch program that I think people may not connect with, or I don't know if they can forget if they didn't know in the beginning, uh, but that is that it's a game of participation. So the way the school lunch program works is, like I had mentioned earlier, if you're on the program based on income and household size, uh, we get reimbursed by the government uh, for each meal that we serve. So the more meals we serve, the more reimbursement we get, the more money we have to buy better things. So when I first came to San Luis Coastal, participation was pretty low. And a lot of the things that I found in-house were packaged, processed, um, easy. They're very easy, but they weren't necessarily of a very high quality or a quality that, that kids really wanted to consume. And I think that's a really interesting point because it doesn't matter how inexpensive or expensive your meal is. It doesn't matter, you know, these, these pieces about it. What matters is if kids are going to eat it. <laughs> so. Yeah. When I started and asked about these, you know, there were 15, 15 different kinds of packaged processed pizza in-house. Wow. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's a lot of pizza. Which one is the good one? None. Then why do we have it? Yeah. And so I think that kind of questioning of it, it my questioning is not, is not to say, oh, you know, things weren't good here. Or it was bad before. Not at all. My questioning is to say, what is the right, um, this is the surprise I was telling you might happen. Yes, Three-year-old three surprises. Um, my questioning really comes down to how do we do the best possible thing given, you know, the, the parameters that we have. Do you want to say hi to Miss Jamie? Can I say hi, Miss Jamie? <laughs> this is Ella. Oh, hi. Hi. Sneak yeah. peek on my Zoom call. Guess what mom's talking about? Uh, what? About food. Yeah. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Again, I know. Mom and her calls. So I, I just think that, you know, we have such an opportunity that we're missing if we're right, relying so much on, on packaged and processed foods. And that's not to say that anyone did things that, you know, it, it's not to put any negative light on the past, but it's really to say, like, we should question what we're doing. Yeah. We should, you should question what I'm doing. We should be questioning everything because that's when we're going to know that we're making the right choices. That's when we're going to know that we're really having an impact on, on what we're trying to do. And a lot of the things that San Luis Coastal did uh, prior to my time that were great, 
we didn't talk about it. Mm. <laughs> so we had purchased kiwi from a Mallard Lake ranch for eight years. And when I asked around about it, nobody knew anything about it. So this is the kind of thing where it's so important not only to establish those relationships and pave the way for new and better things to happen, but to talk about it. And I think that's where the catering and marketing background that I have really just fits so beautifully with what we're trying to do now um, in, in establishing the, the network and the, the relationship and then talk about it. Mm. You know, having our trucks that I'm sure you've seen around town, they have yeah. giant billboards splashed all around them because having fresh, real food is really important. What we're serving to kids matters. Yeah. These are things that are just super critical and getting that word out and making sure that our students understand that, their parents understand that, our greater community understands that is just really important to how we're successful. Yes. And the truck thing, I hadn't thought about that, but so for anybody <laughs> who hasn't seen it, this, it's a, you know, it's like a, a typical delivery truck, but it's got on the sides, it has really colorful, um, high definition photos of kids and veggies and fruits. And it's, it's like expertly designed and beautiful. And I guess the thing that I'm seeing with that, I noticed it right away, of course, the first time I saw it is there's a taking pride in what we're doing instead of it being kind of opaque. And along those lines, um, I like what you said about all or nothing and how, you know, a lot of the time, um, perfection is the enemy. And so it's easy to get wrapped up in, let's do it all organic, let's do it all local, let's do you know none of it frozen, none of it from a can, and that's great and what a great goal to have. But you can't do that all at once, especially in a system as ingrained as this. And so what I see with, um, since you've come on, is small changes that make a big difference. Yeah, most definitely. And really talking about it, engaging it at all levels. I mean, obviously, our customers are students. You know, that's really where we want to make sure our customer is satisfied with our product. Because if they don't like it, if it doesn't taste good, they're not going to come back and buy another meal from us, which then decreases participation. It decreases funding. It doesn't allow me additional dollars to spend doing these crazy ideas that I have all the time. Uh, and so that's where, you know, these relationships, I say it so much is, is relationship-based. I have such amazing relationships with people. We have such an amazing community of people who really care about the same thing. And I feel like San Luis Coastal is, is just a perfect size for me and what I want to do. And we've got the perfect community to be ready to receive and accept that. And even though I've used perfect in the last two sentences multiple times, it totally is about progress and not perfection. Mm -hmm. And you're exactly right. People get really hung up. I myself get really hung up on, you know, we really want things to be as close to perfect as they can be, um, but it's never going to be 100%. And if that's the baseline, you're never going to achieve goals. And I think being realistic about what goals that we want to set out to accomplish is, is very smart being easy on ourselves is, is really important as well. You can tell I've got a pretty high level of, you know, uh, <laughs> earnest desire of wanting to do things. But if I made the baseline that everything had to be perfect, we would never go anywhere. We yeah. would never do anything. One of the hardest decisions I've had to make during this pandemic is we made a plan uh, on Friday the 13th. We set out with that plan on Monday the 16th. 
And by Friday, the 20th, 21st, we had to make a completely different plan and put that into place. And I had a really hard time with, you know, how is this going to be received? And we're changing information and we're, but we've had to adjust to what the right decisions are based on the information we have as it evolves. And I've had to really look at, you know, it's not about that perfection. It's really about doing as best as you possibly can. Um, But perfection, I, I really don't think that's, that's the goal. Even with my relationships with local farmers, you know, would I love for everything to be um, 100% local and, and close to that? Yes, of course. Does it always make sense? No, it doesn't. And I think seeing that throughout my career of the same thing with 100% organic, does that even make sense? You know, when we're looking at getting organic napkins, not really a thing, but, you know, it, it's like, is that really what we're spinning our, our wheels around? It's yeah. like, let's make sure our center of the plate is really high quality, um, even in this pandemic. So prior to pandemic, you have clearly seen that I very much am a big fan of local farms. Yeah. I think the most reasonable and realistic way to incorporate local farm is local farm produce is through our salad bar. Clearly, that's going to have to be rethought in opening up a new school year. I can't imagine salad bars, right? Uh, And so how do I continue to support my local ag community if I've got these barriers around what products and how I'm going to be able to serve them? So when we shut down um, school and we started this weekly or we started this pandemic feeding, um, we realized that because so much needed to be itemized, and that was a requirement from the state, it made it really difficult for us to go to our local farmers and say, hey, can you give me a three-quarter cut bag of baby carrots? Like, that's not, <laughs> a, local, a small local farm doesn't have packaging, uh, you know, capabilities, and there's just so much to how that doesn't work, right? But not supporting local farms is not in my DNA. So I had to figure out, well, how are we going to do that? And since most of the time it's been produce, we very intentionally and strategically shifted our purchasing for this pandemic meal service to, all right, well, who can we support and how can we still make this a part of what we do? And what we did was we looked at the grain items that needed to be included in these meal kits. And we said, all right, we're not going to purchase um, anything that is not from Edna's Bakery. We're going to make sure that any breakfast, whole grain, pastry type item that we're going to buy, we're putting that money in Edna's Bakery. They're already our vendor. We've already been purchasing things from them. It just wasn't like 100%. And so we very intentionally shifted that immediately to we want to support a business that's right here in Slow. The next thing we did, um, and in addition to pastries, they also do uh, buns. So we were like, all right, anything with a bun. That's their great. buns are the best too. Their brioche bun is back. tops. Yeah. Back, 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 back. Now we have to use everything whole grain. So they're 51% whole grain. And this is another one that's really funny is that I get a lot of um, feedback from people who aren't as familiar with what the nutritional requirements are for the National School Lunch Program uh, or Breakfast Program. And so they'll say things to me like, oh, you're serving, you know, Danish and cinnamon rolls and oh, terrible. Let's really look at what those nutritional facts are. So I'm not able to serve things that aren't 51% or more whole grain. Edna's Bakery has created an entire line of school compliant products that taste great, but they're reduced fat, reduced sugar, lower in calorie from a uh, delicious and compliant uh, standpoint, they have the market on it. So I hope that families are getting the weekly meal kit and can actually taste 
how amazing these products are. Uh, but we very much shifted purchasing to Edna's for those products. And then we also thought, well, how can we continue to support some other businesses? And Taco Works came to mind. We had started a relationship with Taco Works uh, this past school year for nacho type items. And uh, they packaged their Montana de Oro chips, which are also uh, whole grain and compliant, uh, in a in a bag that we actually could serve in our weekly meal kits as the entire grain for the week. So we, we actually bought thousands of cases of chips from Taco Works because we really wanted to make sure that our purchasing was very much going into our local economy, even though that may not have been through produce, which was a lot of what we were doing before. Yeah, I think that's great. And Taco Works folks are so generous. My, my brother's in the Air Force, and at one time, uh, and we grew up here, so Taco Works were sort of like in our bloodstream, um, which maybe is not not super healthy, but they're so good. Um, and uh, my brother was overseas, and they sent him a five-pound box of Taco Works, and I will very never cool. forget that. Um, yeah. Very, well, very so cool. I'm also thinking about, you know, anybody who's listening to this, they may not be a San Luis Coastal family, and they may not be, you know, they may not have children. So can you talk a little bit about the shift that you did from like, what was it Friday the 13th? What was the plan? And then Friday the 20th or 21st, how did that plan change? Sure. So when we, um, when we were aware that we were going to shut down on Friday the 13th, um, CBE and USDA had shared that schools who operate the national school lunch and breakfast programs could go into what we call summer seeding. And typically in the summers, we see fewer students. And so uh, at qualified sites, meaning sites that are either in needy areas or they're 50% or more in that free or reduced lunch percentage, uh, that we can serve meals at those sites free to anyone 0 to 18. Um, they don't have to be a, a student. They could be preschool age or just graduated. But 0 to 18 was the age range. Uh, two meals a day, breakfast and lunch, free, no questions asked, no sign up, super easy. Now, we started that program uh, two years ago in the summer. The summer before that, where we didn't run it, we served about 1,500 meals all summer. The summer's always been, like, small for us, right? And that's just summer school, ESY, very, very small internal district students. The summer that we started this seamless summer program where it's the free meal, anyone zero to 18, we really wanted to attract more than just summer school, really community members. The summer before, 1,500 meals. The first summer we did seamless summer, we did 15,000 meals. That's right. So we yes. knew we, that there I, was... Our family can account for probably 20 of those. It was one of my favorite summers. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we love that, right? Like we love being able to feed the community. It makes so much sense. And we've been having great partnerships with that. We've partnered with uh, the library system to do summer meal kickoffs and partner with their summer reading program. It, it's really been a, a wonderful program to see how much strength there is in our community. And going back to that need, what a need. I mean, you wouldn't mm. think that in a district that only served 1,500 meals one summer, that 15,000 would even be something that we could think of or, or possibly execute. So it's been a great program for us. And knowing that we could run that program during school closure, we were very confident that we wanted to do this at as many sites as we could. We had this feed the world mentality. And uh, we opened up on Monday the 16th at 10 of our 15 school sites, um, serving meals every day, Monday through Friday, two meals a day. So we were giving lunch for today, breakfast for tomorrow. Uh, anyone zero to 18, open site, everybody comes, 
good time. You want to guess how many meals we served in that first week? Oh my gosh, I shudder to think. <laughs> how many? How many? 15,000 in a week. Oh my gosh, the same the amount same that you did in the that summer. We do all summer. <laughs> Were you, did you so get your gray we, hairs then? Were you just sweating constantly? I, I'm naming them all. This is COVID 19. This one's Ella, my daughter. This is Enzo, my son. My husband's back in there too. Uh, but it, it, it's a lot. I mean, that, that was a lot of meals. And so in that first week, and again, this is still at the time, if we can all think back to March, middle of March when the world was shutting down around us and we were hearing just crazy, crazy news stories, my team went into feed the world mode. That's the mode we, we are very used to just, we feed our kids. This is what we do. But we realized after that first week, that was not sustainable. No. We could not continue feeding the same number of meals we normally serve all summer each week. That, that just wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't something that we could do. Plus you have so to consider the, the health and safety of the people who are working for you. Big time. Correct. Correct. And that was a big piece of it too. We thought, you know, if these, if the orders from the government are shelter at home and we're like, come out every day, get meals. Like that, that's not only risking our students, that's risking our staff. It, that was just a lot, a lot to kind of come to that, that first week of, you know, everything is, is crazy. So that Friday, um, <laughs> that Friday, I, I spoke to some colleagues. I was like, okay, what, what are other people doing? I can't be the only one that's having this problem. Uh, I spoke to CDE. I've got some really great contacts there that were trying to help us navigate through some of these next steps. A lot of the challenge and difficulty in what we're dealing with, A, during this pandemic, but B, in general, is we get money from the government. So there are a lot of rules. There are a lot of rules around how we operate, how we operate safely, how we operate fairly, how we ensure confidentiality, how we make sure things are nutritionally adequate. I mean, the amount of rules in a child nutrition program are astounding. Even just with with some of the current rules in the pandemic, there's like 1800 page man. I mean, it, it, it is, it is nothing short of mind boggling how many rules there are because we're dealing with ed code. And, and really the way that I try and explain it to, to people is that we get money from the government, we get federal funds and we get state funds. So there are rules around how we account for our program. Uh, and so we have to be very respectful of those rules and, and follow those rules. And so very quickly when we realized, okay, this is a great program, we do want to feed the world, but how do we reasonably sustain doing that and keep everyone safe? Uh, that is no small feat. So in the matter of, of a week, uh, I put together an entirely different plan that said, okay, what if we moved from having everybody come out every day to a weekly meal kit and we could give five breakfasts and five lunch meals at one time and expose staff and, and families one day a week. Staff could have two days to prep and then one day of service and then two days off. Like that seemed like a more sustainable structure. Uh, and in order to do that, we had to get special permission from the state. Uh, one of the big issues with child nutrition programs is fraud. Uh, there unfortunately have been some stories that have come out um, during this pandemic that are mind-boggling. There was one in Florida where uh, 
people were reselling the milk that they got for free with the school meals. So there's just crazy stuff that happens, right? And so protecting the program and preventing fraud is is very important. And so when the state asked me, okay, well, you know, if you're going to do this weekly meal kit, how can you make sure that people aren't getting multiple ones? How do you make sure that it's it's limited to who's supposed to get them, right? Uh, And so I thought, well, you know, maybe we should just have a, a sign up. And it would be district families who would sign up using their student's ID number. We could track it. And then I can make sure that there's not any duplications or people who are trying to get multiple kits or we can really prevent fraud that way. So they allowed me to do this weekly meal kit idea. But in order to have this tracking mechanism, I wasn't able to keep our sites open or free for everyone zero to 18. So we wound up closing the site and on uh, Monday and Tuesday of that following week, we maintained our um, daily meal service because in addition to this being extraordinarily complicated to manage on the back end, how do you communicate about that when you just communicated an entirely different plan days ago? (laughs) So we allowed Monday and Tuesday to be um, daily meals, and then we started the weekly meal on Wednesday. I could have just said on that Friday, okay, we're going to stop, and then we'll start back up on Wednesday with these weekly meal kits. But I did not feel like that was the right thing to do specifically for our food insecure households, but really for everybody. It was a lot of change, a lot of different things. And I think that was probably the worst week of the pandemic, Mm, (laughs) trying to do daily meals and weekly meals uh, in the same week. So I'm glad we haven't done that since then. Uh, But it was a lot having to get through an initial plan with these daily meals and then moving to this weekly meal plan while existing in that daily meal plan structure uh, in order to get to the greener pasture. I can tell you now that we've done this for several weeks. Uh, we're very well oiled now. We have a very smooth process in place. But, uh, you know, those of you who have lived through it with us, man, week one of weekly meal kits was, it was a mess. You know, we had a, a line of cars at Laguna down to Ocean Air and it was a lot. There was a lot of of struggle uh, getting that that first week of meal kits done. But now that we're in the routine, uh, we're in a really good place. I will say the biggest downside of this new style of service is that we've had to limit it to San Luis Coastal families. Um, It's been very difficult having to not, having to turn away or say, no, we can't provide meals for students who are not San Luis Coastal. Uh, What I have done is I've worked with the adult school and the parent participation program. We have uh, included those students as our own. So we are giving meals uh, to any of them who have signed up. And I had to go back to the state. Uh, Again, they really are on speed down. I have have very nice friends there now. Uh, But I had to advocate for siblings. Um, non-San Luis Coastal siblings of San Luis Coastal students uh, because originally they said, no, if they're not a student with an ID number, you can't verify them, so you can't provide meals to them. Well, try telling a, a parent who has, you know, two children, one who goes to San Luis Coastal and one doesn't, yeah, you can feed one of your kids, but not both right. of them. Uh, and I had to do that for a while. And that was just not, it, I knew that wasn't the right answer. Uh, and so because everything is just constantly evolving and we're constantly getting new direction and new information, I went back to the state and I said, you know, we have to be able to, to provide sibling meals. I had to write another waiver request to do that. Uh, but I was able to get that approved. And so that is a new thing. So anyone who's listening who has siblings that um, you have not told me about, let, let me know. I, I can definitely take care of that now. But I will say, because that is another change, 
we've been pretty silent about that piece of it. We've taken care of it on the back end and anyone where we know there's a sibling, we're adding them to our sheet. Uh, but talk about, you know, perfection and not having mm-hmm. clear communication or having, you know, one plan one week and now it's a different plan and now we've changed it again. It, it's been a lot to manage. So I can only imagine how that felt for families on the, on the front end of it. But I will tell you that there were two really big pieces that I was waiting for to feel less responsible to feeding the world. The first thing was um, kind of this universal basic income or or having the um, stimulus uh, money come through. And so that was the first hurdle where I thought, okay, at least if families are getting something, um, that makes me not feel like it's, it's the weight is on my shoulders. And the second piece is pandemic EBT or PEBT. And that is uh, now being released um, this month where anyone who's on the meal program will receive that $365 per child uh, to be able to spend on, on groceries. So those two things happening have really made me feel more confident in the decision that we've made to have weekly meals, but to limit that to San Luis Coastal only families. I'm so grateful. As you talk, I think about how, you know, government often gets a bad rap. And, and, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, for sure. But it's been beautiful to see the ways that government can serve the people. Um, And this has been a great example of that. And uh, I know it's not nearly enough. It's never going to be. Um, And I know that it's not perfect. But I'm really grateful for um, for our tax dollars doing that. It's it's really yeah. wonderful to see and have passionate people at the helm who don't cower in fear, but they are you know ready to make it work. And I really appreciate your gray hairs. Um, I I know <laughs> I, I just know that San Luis Obispo and the coastal communities here that San Luis Coastal uh, Unified School District covers. There is a distinct, um, there is poverty and people don't always see that and they don't know, uh, because we do a pretty good job here of covering it over and saying, this is, you know, destination San Luis Obispo, but there really is poverty here. And, um, I really like what you say about feeding people, making people excited to eat it not because of poverty, but because it's really good. And I think there couldn't be anything better than that for our children. I agree. You know, one of the pieces that I I think is, I don't know how intentional it is about about being overlooked, but relating to this is is not only poverty, um, but our immigrant families and our migrant families. You know, the the stimulus check piece where, where people got these additional funds only happened to people who filed tax returns. And a lot of our migrant families, you know, may not have been able to receive that money. And so that was very difficult Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of them are our most vulnerable population. And the nice thing about this pandemic EBT is that immigration status is not a factor of that. I think that's another really important piece that we're trying to get out is that this really isn't about only helping a select group of, of families or of people. It really is about how we can use um, the resources that we have to make it 
equitable for all. And I really appreciate San Luis Coastal for having the courage to look at things through that lens. It's often very uncomfortable and it's often very difficult, but nothing is ever going to happen if we don't have people in these positions who are willing to be brave and um, and really call things out and, and offer support in areas that may otherwise be overlooked. So I'm really um, hopeful that that message about pandemic EBT will be clear for families that there is no risk. This is not a public charge program. Um, this really is a way for us to make sure that um, that our families in need have the support that, that they really need. This is a really unprecedented time. And, and you're right, having government do good things um, isn't always the headline. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those programs. Cool. Well, I ask everybody, what would you eat if it were your last meal? What What is the thing that would make you feel, okay, I'm ready to go? Ooh, that's tough. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, it would definitely have to be with some of my favorite people. Those feelings around it uh, are very big for me. Uh, I'm Italian, and so I, I absolutely love uh, Italian foods. My husband is Filipino. Yes, we had Italian and Filipino food at our wedding. It was not uh, a fusion thing. And so it would probably be uh, a classic Italian dish, uh, grandma's lasagna, and uh, maybe a Filipino dish in there as well. Uh, some of the favorite things that I love. Uh, maybe dim sum, too. I'm a big dim sum fan, which we don't have around here. So if yeah. anyone's listening and can start a dim sum restaurant, I, I will guarantee my patronage. Yeah, it's time, <laughs> people. It's time for that. Yeah, it's time. Let's, let's do it. Aaron, thank you for taking time. I, you know, it was hard to ask because I know how busy you are and how much you're doing, you know, even from home, sitting at your computer but I really appreciate you taking time to tell me. I think there are a lot of people curious about how it's been, and this is really good to hear. Awesome. Well, thanks for your interest. I, I was absolutely delighted to take some time with you today, and thank you for sharing uh, this good message. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks so much for listening to Consumed, as always. I'm so glad you joined me. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. If you want to get all kinds of tidbits like recipes, updates on guests, and new seasons, join the Consumed mailing list at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at J-A-I-M-E-C-L-E-W-I-S. Until next season, wear your mask, wash your hands, cook dinner, send letters to your loved ones, support your local purveyors, and make a budget for takeout. Every little bit helps. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.